you're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today's episode is with Bianca Nogrady on climate change. Bianca and I had a great conversation. Bianca was very passionate about climate change, and you can tell she cares deeply about the subject. We talked about the political implications of climate change and how there are still climate change deniers out there. Even though the evidence is present, they still want to deny climate change due to their special interests. We also talked about the technology behind climate change, some of the great revolutionary work that's going on with startups in particular around climate change and what this means for the fight against climate change. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today, we are joined by Bianca Nogrady. Bianca is a freelance science journalist and author. She has written for outlets, including Nature, The Atlantic, Wired UK, and The Guardian, to name a few. She is also founding president of the Science Journalists Association of Australia. And today, we will be discussing her book, Climate Change, How We Can Get to Carbon Zero. Bianca, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much, On. So when I was reading your book, these wired series, I think are great introductions into into complex topics. I think it would be a great place to start to ask how you came about writing this book and why you think this conversation of topic is, is so important. Well, it's funny because when Wired first got in touch with me, they, they kind of came at this with the brief of how do we fix climate change uh, in 25,000 words, um, which there was a, you know, the part of my brain that wants to keep me sane said, yeah, that's going to be a little complicated. So we kind of looked at how we might be able to frame this in such a way as to make it a little bit more bite-sized and came up with the idea that of carbon as a kind of a proxy for, I guess, the damage that is being done and, and the, the thing that we need to fix. It doesn't address everything, obviously. It doesn't address some pretty massive issues like inequality, like, you know, loss of biodiversity, like pollution, water, food and water security. But it's a useful marker for, um, I guess, the, the biggest, scariest problem facing us, which is, you know, a warming planet. So once we settled on that, it was really a case of trying to, I guess, trace carbon through our lives. And when I say carbon, I guess that's really, you know, carbon dioxide um, as a greenhouse gas emission. Uh, it's really trying to trace its path through our life, um, our lives, our everyday lives, our work, our business, um, every aspect of what we do, and look at the many innovations that have been uh, developed, some of which have been around for a very, very long time, and some of which are very much on the cusp, technologically speaking, and looking at how those are, can help us decarbonize our economy. You know, this has been a, a kind of a discussion for a very, very long time, is that so much of um, economic growth is tied to the um, combustion of carbon, whether that be coal, oil, natural gas, um, and therefore the production of carbon dioxide. So how do we decouple those things? How do we have an economy that doesn't rely on the kind of one directional consumption of um, not just carbon, but resources in general? And so that was really the thing that drove, uh, I guess, the, the, the framing of the book, which mm still didn't make it any easier and it still just about killed me trying to kind of shoehorn 
you know, the proverbial elephant into, I'd like to say a mini, but really it was a matchbox car. Um, but at the end of it, I think, I hope what we've achieved with this book is to really give a, a crash course in what it means to decarbonize, what a decarbonized world looks like and, and how we might get there. Because that's really, that is the big question. How do we get there? And how do we get there yesterday? Like this is not some academic discussion about how we achieve this in the next 20 years or 30 years. You know, everyone talking about 2050, like this is arbitrary figure that's just plucked out of the sky. No, 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 this needs to happen now. So um, there was a sense of trying to convey the urgency of the situation as well. Yeah, the urgency definitely came along. And there's also an element of why hasn't this happened already? That was that was an element of the book. Yeah. And, you know, that's the one thing I, well, one of many things that I don't have an answer for. I, I was actually just talking the other day with a bunch of people who work in the kind of energy sector who work on trying to trans, uh, help companies to move to, um, you know, low carbon electricity. And even they don't have an answer as to why this hasn't happened now. And they're working in the energy sector, which, you know, is kind of one of the easiest to decarbonize. So, you know, it, it is a really tough question. Why hasn't this happened? And I don't know the answer. I, it, all I can come up with, I guess, is, is political intransigence. The fact that the powers that are working against decarbonization have incredibly deep pockets. Um, and those deep pockets buy a lot of political power. Um, and so really what we're seeing is, is the kind of the last white knuckled grip of the fossil fuel industry on, on the economies around the world and on society. And, you know, they've done very, very well out of the industrial revolution and, and uh, you know, the carbonization of economic growth. And so naturally that amount of power does not go quietly into the good night. And so I, I feel that that's really the, the reluctance that we're seeing because you know, the innovation that, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that this book was such a positive experience seeing, you know, the, the incredible diversity of innovations that have existed for quite a long time to enable us to achieve this decarbonisation. Um, it's really just getting things out of the way, you know, getting in some ways, getting governments out of the way so that these things can actually take root and grow and, uh, you know, upscale. That seems to be the trade-off at the moment, especially in sort of Western countries, is a trade-off between economic development or environmental concern. But you gave a great example in the book of Denmark and the work that they've done in reducing carbon emissions and fossil fuel usage by 36% whilst also growing its economy by 50%. So for me, it's not so much the fact of whether they have the ability to do so. Like you said, it's more due to interest or yeah, political interest mainly. Yeah. And I think that's what's so frustrating about this is that the economic argument is crystal clear. I mean, the, the, the economics of decarbonisation uh, are so much in favour of it that, it, again, it, it baffles me why we haven't made this transition. You know, the, even just looking at the global average levelised cost of electricity, which is basically the cost of um, say a power plant over its lifetime divided by the amount of energy it produces, mm. um, which is a kind of a, you know, per kilowatt hour. So it's, it's a useful metric for how much these different forms of energies cost. And pretty much all of the renewable energies that, that the main renewable energy technologies that exist are either the same as or lower than uh, fossil fuels in terms of cost per kilowatt hour. You know, the economics of this makes sense. But what I find really interesting is the opportunities that are inherent in 
decarbonisation and in diversification of our energy resources. So, for example, one thing that, that I found really fascinating was um, the role that hydrogen may play in decarbonising shipping and freight. And, um, you know, it's a very tough industry to decarbonise because it's pretty much entirely dependent on oil. And so to, but one of the um, models that's being looked at is the idea of converting shipping to um, hydrogen fuel cell based boats. And this has a number of advantages just in terms of the actual building of a boat is that, you, you know, hydrogen fuel cells are modular. So you can just pack these all around the boat. You don't have to have a large central engine and a large central storage of, um, of fuel. Mm -hmm. So, but what it would mean is that you would need to have countries uh, and coastal locations throughout the world that were able to resupply ships with liquid hydrogen. So you look at a country like Dubai, which at the moment has kind of positioned itself as I guess an air hub, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thoroughfare for so much air travel. Um, and that's, uh, you know, a significant contributor to the, the Dubai economy. But, you know, Dubai has coastline, it has a lot of sun, it has waves. Um, so, you know, what if high, uh, you know, Dubai was able to reposition itself as a hydrogen refueling station for so many of these ships? You know, similarly, Australia, I mean, we have an abundance of uh, natural renewable energy sources, wind, wave, um, sun, you know, we and, and you know, a number of, of leading um, experts in Australia have really argued for this, that Australia does need to position itself at the forefront of this new hydrogen economy to be able to actually supply hydrogen and, and, and become a net energy exporter, which at the moment, I don't believe we are I mean, exporting coal, I guess. But, you know, so it, it allows for a level of energy independence that, that fossil fuels just don't because they're natural resources that have to be dug out of the ground. They only exist in certain areas. Whereas, yeah. you know, most countries, if they haven't got a coastline, they've got sun, they've got wind, or they've got a coastline, they've got access to tidal power. You know, that diversification of, of and that energy independence and that energy security that comes with switching away from fossil fuels offers so many opportunities to so many nations around the world. Yeah, definitely. You gave the example of Australia base where, where you're based about what is it one in five households have solar panel at the moment which is amazing yeah. to be fair I, I don't think any other country you, you must i think australia must be the leading country for solar panel yeah we are one of the leaders in the world and and i mean we have a lot of sunshine not that you'd know at the moment where we're facing record rainfall but um I would, you know, I'm, I'm from the uk so i mean oh, right yeah that's true you, you, you never see the sun <laughs> You never see the sun. That is very true. But um, we see a lot of sun. Uh, we also have a lot of wind. Uh, we have a lot of open space that cannot really be used for much else. And, and I guess when I say that, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, being able to create large scale solar farms or wind farms or offshore wind farms or tidal power farms. I mean, you know, Australia has so much opportunity to become an energy superpower in some ways. But um, there are, you know, say we're somewhat stymied by our government, which has pretty much been, uh, yeah, they've been climate deniers for a very long time, and certainly I don't think they're really showing any signs of changing. So, um, yeah, we're we're in a bit of a pickle on that front. But, um, but you know, the fact that we have such high consumer uptake of solar does suggest that the, you know, certainly Australian communities see the value in this, um, particularly as our um, energy prices have gone up significantly, Ele electricity prices have gone up significantly. There's also, you know, a lot of um, grid instability when we have extreme weather events, which we're going to have more of, you know, we have the issue of bush bushfires where people lose power, you know, we've got a lot of, I mean, the grid is enormous, you know, it stretches across some towns are thousands of kilometres away from anything else. So, 
it's another great thing with your renewable energies. It would offer the ability for so many of these, you know, these kind of rural regional outback locations to achieve effectively energy independence from the grid. Mm. An interesting thing that I read in the book in, in, in reference to these, uh, these technologies was the fact of the recycling of them. It seems like recycling of these technologies is going to be a, a huge industry in of itself rather than just the manufacturing of it. Do you fear, or when you spoke to these experts, was there a, a cause for concern about what to do with these materials and how to recycle them in the same way that we're seeing, for instance, in space? when they're firing rockets and you see space debris and how there's going to get to a stage where they have to actually now time the rocket so they miss other space debris. I don't know if you've seen the NASA um, graphic where there's... Yeah, all of it. Yeah, yes. Around, around the Earth, which is utterly scaring, uh, scary. Um, did, did these scientists have the same concerns when it came to the, the recycling of these, of these, uh, these goods? Yeah, it's certainly front of mind for, for a number of people, and I guess particularly in the solar panel space. Um, so Dr. Michelle McCann, who is a, a solar photovoltaic expert who's actually based in Canberra here in Australia, she's held the world record for the most efficient uh, solar panel twice in her life, which is quite an achievement. Mm. Um, yeah, she said that the recycling of these is going to be a, a big issue because the industry has just you know boomed. I mean, when it started, all the, you know, none of the silicon um, kind of, uh, mining companies were particularly interested in supplying solar panels because all the money was in was in computers, um, was in software, uh, hardware, I should say. Uh, whereas obviously now the tables have turned. Mm. But and and this is where we run into the limitations of focusing on carbon. Is that um, yes, solar panels and wind turbines and all of these renewable energy technologies get us away from carbon um, in terms of generating electricity. But we have to be very careful that we don't just you know, swap one set of problems for another. We don't want to be in a situation where we are faced with um, a shortage of silicon, for example, which is not likely seeing as it's, I think, the second or first most abundant uh, element on Earth. But you know, there is an environmental cost associated with the mining of, with the processing of, the purification of, um, and, you know, the thing with solar panels is that the silicon that's used in solar panels is of an incredibly high quality. Um, and I think it was described as, you know, you, when you, the, the sort of purity of silicon that we use in solar panels is like using a racehorse to go down to the end of the driveway and collect the mail. Um, but when these panels reach the end of their life, they're discarded. So we're losing all of those resources. We're just chucking them out. And so, you know, where I guess carbon... Uh, it's it's not necessarily relevant, but it also is, is that we we have to also transition while we're decarbonizing, we have to transition to a closed loop with all of our resources, you know, that, that there should be no open-ended um, abandonment of any resource that there, and I, you know, I think there is a lot of work going on in this space to work out, well, how do we uh, reclaim all of the materials that we use in solar panels, but also more importantly, how do we design solar panels to make it easy for us to reclaim those materials so we don't keep have to uh, keeping on, on have to dig them out of the ground i mean wind turbines are kind of easier because they're just a whole lot of metal um, but you know solar panels you've got a lot of different components that are quite kind of intricately woven uh, together and so separating those out is is complex but I, I firmly believe we will achieve that because it will come to a point where the economics of recycling, um, you know, are much more favourable than the economics of digging those materials out of the ground mm. in the first place. I thought an interesting take on the wind turbine one in particular was the fact that they actually want to move them offshore, but onto 
platforms. Is that correct? I, I never heard that yeah. before. Yeah, so there's onshore wind and offshore wind. Um, the advantage, I guess, with offshore wind is you're not necessarily taking up space that might otherwise be used, for example, by you know, buildings or, or humans or agriculture. Um, and particularly in Europe, where space is at a premium, then that has a lot of advantages. Um, also, when you start to move offshore, the, you can actually, um, there's more wind. So for example, the North Sea is a real hotspot for developing offshore wind. And I think Denmark has actually uh, signed an agreement with a number of different, a, a number of other European nations to develop some massive offshore uh, wind turbine islands, I guess. Mm. Um, so there's advantages of that. There, uh, the floating, because uh, yeah, the further offshore you go, the deeper the water. So then you start to come into some fairly massive engineering challenges. But then again, we have offshore oil platforms for quite a long time. So these challenges are surmountable, but that's where the floating offshore wind platforms could um, could be useful. Uh, but, you know, the, the engineering and mechanics of those, I think are still, they're still being worked on. They're not as well established as onshore wind, for example. But um, in terms of the actual space available for offshore wind, huge, absolutely huge. There's no competition with, with sort of any other, you know, I mean, there's competition with shipping, but that doesn't use a lot of ocean space. So yeah, a lot of interest in that, but also in things like, um, I, I remember being about 10 years ago, finding out about kite power. So it's like a wind turbine where you do away with the pole and you basically, you just have the blades, but they they operate like a kite. And so you have the, you know, as the, the wind, sort of unspools the kite the spinning of that drum gives you that the turbine generates the energy and then mm. you use a small amount of that energy then to reel the kite back in and then you know rinse and repeat and you know that that would have the advantage of being able to go a lot higher up where winds are much stronger so the further you get off the earth's surface the stronger the winds become so if you can go higher and with fewer resources then you can capture more wind so there's a yeah, lot of haven't seen amazing those. developments I haven't seen that technology. Where's where are they using that anywhere, or is that more? No, of a there's. I think there's companies that are looking at it, and there's variations on it. So uh, when I looked at this, it was actually about yeah about ten years ago. Um, the company that I was looking at then, I was writing about then, has since um, gone gone bust. So it's it's obviously a very tricky space to be in. But there's you know there are various models. Um, I think there was one I looked at that um, resembles a glider rather than a kite. It looks a bit like a like a glider plane. Um, so again, these these um, this area is more at the start of its technological trajectory, I guess. Mm. But it does solve some of the problems in terms of reducing the amount of resources used, um, being able to gain a sort of greater height. So I think it will be an area to watch. An interesting thing that I a thread that I found throughout the book was the fact that we often the citizens look as the at the government to be the ones to sort of peddle these policies and these innovations but from the book it seems like it's the private markets and these uh, technology companies that are really at the forefront of producing these should we be really looking at these private markets and then how from when you're doing the research from, with the book and speaking to these experts how are they seeing their relationship with these technology companies how can we as champions for this cause for climate change help these companies and what can governments do in fact to help these companies that's that's a yeah <laughs> i wish i had the answers to those questions is it, um, is it is it 
Is it more of a funding thing or is it more of a regulatory thing? Do you think? I think it's both. I, I think um, obviously regulatory issues. Um, so, for example, I think I just saw something in the news in the last couple of days in the UK about there being a change in um, subsidies or something to do with it that benefited petrol powered car, petrol fueled cars, um, disadvantaged electric vehicles. So, you know, I think in Australia or some parts of the world, electric vehicles are still um, taxed as luxury vehicles. You know, it's little things like that where it makes, it creates a disincentive for, or a barrier to companies then, um, you know, looking to move into an, a, an area of the market or looking to move into a country. And, and I spoke to um, Bill Gross, who's an American entrepreneur uh, who's involved with a number of different companies. And, and, you know, he said the advantage with, you know, once you have a company that has, for example, a carbon um, trading system in place, you know, that creates a much more advantageous environment for companies to go in, companies who have these kind of innovations to go in um, because they're competing on a level playing field with existing technologies as opposed to being disadvantaged because those existing technologies or existing resources such as a fossil fuel industry, you know, are so heavily subsidized and they have so many kickbacks and the government has, you know, in Australia I and mean, the government, it's ridiculous, they're pumping money into keeping coal-fired power stations open that their owners, that the energy sector themselves want to close and the government is stepping in saying, no, you can't close there, we want you to keep them open. And, and putting money into that, you know, and so that you can imagine any kind of company that's that's interested in building renewable energy infrastructure, it just sends a message that you are not wanted here, mm. um, and which is exactly the opposite message to what they, you know, the government should be sending. You know, the, so the, the renewable sector and, and the, I guess the kind of low carbon, zero carbon sector, they're not looking for handouts. I mean, they're looking to make a profit. Um, and it's very difficult to do that when the odds are stacked against them and when all of the signals that are coming from government and coming from the regulation uh, say to them, no, no, we're not, we're not really interested in what you're selling. And, um, and you know, that's, that's incredibly frustrating to see that play out. Um, you know, in the parts of the world where governments are actually um, sending those signals, you know, we do see those shifts. And, and I think, you know, what's interesting, and again, talking in Australia, because I live here, you know, the state governments, um, we have, you know, state governments, which are by and large independent from the, the federal government. And um, so a lot of the state governments have really um, pulled out all stops. And, and, you know, for example, in South Australia, they built what was at the time the, um, the biggest uh, lithium ion battery in the Southern Hemisphere uh, to, to um, help supply all of the government facilities with, um, with renewable energy. They were investing in one of the largest solar thermal plants in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, Tasmania, the state of Tasmania has just gone fully 100% renewable as has the Australian Capital Territory. So a lot of the states in Australia are sending those signals, but it's still very challenging at a federal government level because we have completely the opposite signals coming. And so, you know, that makes for a really, I guess, risky um, business enterprise. Whereas I think there are other parts of the world and I actually don't know what those parts of the world are that are doing it well. But I suspect, you know, the Scandinavians, as they seem to do everything well, yeah. are probably doing that pretty well. Um, I imagine Denmark has probably created a very favourable environment for the renewable energy, zero carbon, low carbon sector. Um, and they're reaping the rewards of that. Mm. It seems like Europe is more of a hub for these types of technologies or, or these less restrictions or more opportunities for them to do so. Because I know Elon Musk was finding difficulties, especially with the regulatory framework in the US. And he, I've heard him say that it should, there should be like a levy on these. The, the, his argument was to say is that the market always adapts to price. 
That's what governs the market, the market's price. So if you place a levy on them, for instance, whether it be tobacco or sugar, people are going to find alternative means of pleasure or they're going to find an alternative for it because the price is, is spiked. Do you think that a levy, I know in the book you talked about in when it comes, comes to transport and planes, not incentivizing people through air miles, in fact, placing a levy on air miles because it disincentivizes people because it seems like it's an incentive issue. Well, I, I mean, I think the ultimate incentive is a price on carbon. Um, and, and that was, you know, Nicholas Stern, who was the author of the Stern Review, uh, which I guess was one of the really big um, reports on climate change and the cost of climate change. I mean, you know, he described climate change as the greatest market failure the world has ever seen. Um, now, I'm, I'm not a kind of, um, I, not an economist, but you know, it does seem to me that market failures uh, should be addressed with market solutions. And one of those market solutions is, I mean, levies is a price on carbon because ultimately so many of these technologies are getting away with not internalizing these this externality you know this additional cost to the planet which is carbon dioxide or pollution or whatever you know the environmental destruction is you know they're they're not being made to pay for that um that's not on their balance sheet and it should be on their balance sheet and once it is on their balance sheet in a meaningful sense then we start to see significant change so for example again in australia um we had the we were one of the first nations to actually introduce a carbon uh, trading scheme when uh, we had our first female prime minister, which I don't think is a coincidence, uh, Julia Gillard. And I think that was back in 2010. I'll get my dates wrong here. But, um, you know, she came, she came to power. She introduced this carbon emissions trading scheme. Um, it ran for two years. Uh, we, it, it saw a significant decrease in carbon emissions in just the short period of time that it was operating. And then for reasons very poorly understood, Australia decided to elect uh, a conservative, climate-denying, shall I say, misogynistic prime minister who rolled that back. That was pretty much his first act in office was to roll back this uh, trading scheme. And, um, and, and we became somewhat, you know, sadly, one of the first nations and perhaps the only nation in the world to actually to, uh, to get rid of a successful carbon emissions trading scheme. So it worked, it did what it was intended to do, which was to reduce carbon emissions. Um, and I mean, there's, a state, there's something like 60 something, I think 64 emissions trading schemes in various forms that are operating around the world at kind of country or region level. There's something like 1,600 trading scheme, carbon trading schemes operating within companies. So companies like Microsoft, um, their different departments are, are a little bit like, you know, countries within this, this yeah. scheme that they actually have to account for their carbon emissions and, um, and basically trade them. And, you know, the, the evidence is that even though the, the prices that so many of these, car, these trading schemes have put on carbon are, are woefully low, they're still working, you know, they're still doing what they're intended to do. So, you know, a levy, is, is just basically another word for, you know, putting a price on carbon. And I, I think Nicholas Stern uh, and Joseph Stiglitz actually estimated that um, to really get meaningful change, to drive meaningful market action, that we'd need to have a price on carbon of about US $40 to $80 by 2020, so last year. Um, and then I think it was sort of $50 to $100 by 2030. But I think the vast majority of emissions trading schemes around the world, the price is less than US $10 per tonne. So, you know, we're, we're 
kind of doing what we should be doing, but we're not doing it nearly intensively enough. And I think when we do start to see that price, then that's going to trickle down onto so many things. And that will actually uh, tip the economic balance quite rightly back to, well, to balance, you know, to, to actually accounting for this massive externality, which is carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions. And until we do that, there's no incentive for the fossil fuel industry well, there's no, I guess, disincentive against fossil fuels. It's still business as usual for them. I'm afraid human nature comes into this, I feel, because it's one of those things where unless something is, for instance, an island goes underwater or you have bushfires, uh, particularly in mm -hmm. Australia, I know that's, that's, a, that's a common thing. Uh, and then obviously in the US, especially this year, there's, there's been a lot in California, but also in north, um, in I think in... Washington State as well, near Portland as well. I think they've been having um, forest fires, which obviously they, they don't tend to have that much up there. So I feel like it's one of those things where unless it gets, when it gets really, really bad is when a lot of change is made. And we had James Temperton who, who wrote the book on uh, the future of healthcare on, and he wrote as part of the Wired series. And he was saying about with the COVID um, epidemic and, and he was saying that with that, it was amazing how quickly countries and health uh, bodies came together to produce this vaccine. Whereas if there wasn't this rush to do so, that wouldn't have happened that quickly. So do you fear that a lot of these politicians or regular regulatory bodies are just waiting for something catastrophic to happen to then eventually do something? Um, well, yes, but the irony is that catastrophic is already happening. I mean, I, you know, from where, where I stand now is about 20 metres away from where the 2019-2020 bushfires burned in Australia. Um, so the bottom half of our block uh, was burned. I mean, those bushfires, the economic cost of those bushfires to Australia was huge. You know, the health cost of those fires, um, it, it's been absolutely gargantuan. And, and yet we still have no change. And, you know, we are the the proverbial frog in a slowly heating bottle, sort of pot of water. But I mean, funnily enough, COVID did actually give, a, and a lot of the people that I spoke to said this, that COVID did give them a glimmer of hope, more so than they'd had before the pandemic, because they did see, I mean, we saw humanity change its behaviour drastically. Mm. I mean, you know, we didn't leave the house for however many months. And, you know, so many of us changed so many aspects of our day-to-day -day lives in a way that we've never really done before, um, or certainly in, in modern history. And, you know, if we can do that to, to benefit our communities, which is essentially what so much of that action was, um, then why can't we do that for climate change? And again, I think part of the difference was that, you know, this was, uh, you know, masks were mandated by government, public health interventions were mandated by government, they were enforced for example, in Australia, by quite heavy policing. Um, but we, we can do this. Um, and I think the frustration is the longer we leave it, the worse this gets. I mean, as it stands, we've achieved, <laughs> dubious achievement, um, nearly a degree or just over a degree of temperature increase. So we have nudged the planetary thermostat up by one degree. And all of the, the Paris agreements are pretty much kind of pegged at trying to keep it, that rise below two degrees. But, you know, we sort of keep thinking that that's a great achievement if we keep it below two degrees. But if we're already experiencing at one degree catastrophic drought, I mean, 
you know, one of the largest towns in New South Wales was about two weeks away from running out of water. Tens of thousands of people of running out of water, completely running out of water. We had awful bushfires. We've had so many catastrophes around the world associated with climate change. Um, do we really think we can tolerate two degrees? You know, what? <laughs> it's that sense of how this isn't a, this isn't a situation that is going to remain stable. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's that sense that we we just we have to act, um, not only for preservation of humanity, but also just because, you know, we've we've got the solutions to this. It's not I mean, I say it's not that difficult, but obviously it is difficult. But it, it's not like we have to in, completely invent a whole new way of being. We have these answers. We just need to implement them. And we need to actually make those changes like we've made to COVID, um, to our lives, to our cities, to our businesses. I mean, even something as, something as simple as working from home. You know, you look at the amount of uh, the reduction in um, transport just from people being able to work from home and not having to commute every day. I mean, it was relatively simple for most people it's actually been a favorable change in their lifestyle so it's a it's a weird one I feel like there's just going to be this moment where suddenly everything just goes ah okay it's just going to happen all at once like it kind of did with COVID yeah. um, and I think you know the election of Joe Biden obviously was a big step in that direction because I mean if we'd gone the other way then we're doomed but um, I think you yeah. said in the book there was a 20% reduction in carbon emissions last year is that correct due to COVID uh, no, I think it was a more, the, it was about 6% or there was forecast to be a 6% reduction now, I think, in greenhouse gas emissions. It might have been more than that. Okay. Um, like it was significant, but unfortunately, some of those gains are being rolled back already. You know, we are seeing emissions going back up. People are starting to fly again. People are starting to drive and commute to work again. Um, you know, we, we feel people are shopping again. They're consuming unnecessarily again we're wasting again you know we, we are going back to our old habits and you know this idea of a green reboot which I think uh, for example Germany I think really made that commitment to, to you know a green you know green reboot restart mm. um, you know there, there was an opportunity there even something as simple as putting in bicycle lanes in cities and, yeah. and closing off sections of cities to cars there was such an opportunity, but I, you know, I think that the problem is that everyone was just scrambling to try and get their heads around COVID. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if we'd had these things in place, what we could have done in that time with that opportunity. One of the interesting things that I found interesting about human nature in general, if we're going to go back to that, is the fact that I still think there's some individuals that don't attribute climate change to carbon. They attribute it to something else. Do you feel like that lack of education or the lack of responsibility in order to actually find the cause is part of the reason why we're not making that change because you still have individuals for instance i'm sure your conservative leader of australia and i know donald trump had the same opinion that they they don't believe that climate change is actually a thing they don't believe that an increase in greenhouse gases and consumption of fossil fuels is the reason for this all happening do you think that is the main reason why there hasn't been a wide-scale change? Oh, see, I, I actually think they do. They do accept the science. They know that this is happening. I mean, uh, you'd have to be a complete and utter idiot to not look at the data and realise what the heck is going on. I, I really believe these men and women are not stupid, but what they are is compromised. Um, they're compromised by 
vested interests. They're compromised by, um, by political funding. They're compromised by pressure tactics from, you know, industries that stand to lose a lot mm. um, from this transition. And, and not just industries, more individuals, because, I mean, there, like I keep saying, there's so much opportunity inherent in this transition. You know, reskilling workers, this is a conversation that just, you know, that, that kind of, um, it's called a just transition. Why aren't we providing the opportunities for individuals working in these, these polluting industries to transition to working in renewables, working in energy efficiency. You know, there's so much opportunity to retrain these workforces um, and, and none of that's happening. So understandably, the individuals working in those industries have concern about their future. They don't know what their jobs will be if the coal industry shuts down or if this coal-fired plant shuts down or, you know, if, if um, like China stops buying Australian coal, which it is, is doing. It's... <laughs> It's an ideological war, and and um, there is not uh, you know, it's this idea that you know if we just show them the evidence that they'll be convinced. That's a long a long dead. It's a, mm-hmm. a dead idea with climate change deniers. They're deniers. The, re- the reason they call climate change deniers is because they're denying the evidence. This is not that they don't know the evidence. They're not climate ignorance. They're climate deniers. Um, and they're doing that because their identity is built on, or their, you know, their funding is built on this notion that it's not happening. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I've been fortunate enough to not encounter some sort of straight up climate deniers because I just, I think I just wouldn't be able to talk to them because I, I, there's just no common ground with someone who believes that this is a vast conspiracy that somehow involves 99% of climate scientists that involves massive institutions like in Australia, the Bureau of Meteorology and NASA and, and the, you know, uh, the NOAA in the US. I mean, I find it baffling and, and it, it's a religion for them. And mm. it's a sense that they believe in this either for um, political reasons, it's, it's expedient for them to believe in this. They believe in this because it's financially uh, profitable for them to believe in this and they will deny the evidence as long as it keeps um, ticking that box or scratching that itch mm. so I, I, I just I'm want to feel like the anti-establishment part of me feels like yeah I, th- I mean you, you know I think there's I mean there are obviously there are conspiracy theorists but I think they're they're pretty thin on the ground these days with climate change just because I mean <laughs> yeah. look out a window for god's sake read a weather report um yeah. you know read the news um but I, in terms of political intransigence i think so much of that comes down to the influence of vested interests and and you know where the money is but it seems like there's so many countries and we're going to go back to europe because i think we were talking about how germany is doing a green reboot where they're doing sort of cities uh redoing cities i know amsterdam has been championing this sort of low emissions with their bicycle lanes and when i went to copenhagen and denmark you know you have bikes available sort of every corner and you can go and use them and travel around the city and it's very safe and there's not that many cars around i know in the book you talk about mobility as a system or the, or the mass system should more cities from in when you were speaking to these experts employ this because i feel like that's the that's the merge between the individual and the institution i think a lot of our conversations being what can companies do but then what can individuals do? And I think individuals need to become more responsible about how they travel, not only, for instance, when they go, for instance, on holidays and how they travel, but also their day-to-day travel. Because I look at, for instance, the use of a car and, 
you know, I might drive to work, whatever. And that car is sitting there for nine hours and is doing absolutely nothing. And if everyone in the country is doing that, it just seems like a, logically speaking, it is a terrible use of an asset if you look from a financial point of view. So do you think adopting these systems is the way forward, not only from an economic point of view, but also from a, a resource intensive point of view? Absolutely. So the um, International Transport Federation uh, calculated that if you had a, a highly efficient, um, I guess it's kind of almost like crowd sharing form of transport mm. within cities, you could basically achieve this, uh, no disruption to people's ability to go, get around with just 3% of the cars on the road. So 3% of the cars, you mm. get rid of 97% of cars um, and you, you still are able to get people to where they need to go when they need to get there. Um, so this idea of mobility as a service is part of this kind of broader um, movement towards, um, you know, the service, not the product, that we're not, you know, we're not selling products so much now, we're selling the thing that that product provides, you know, so we're selling mobility, we're selling uh, heat, we're selling light, we're, it's... Mm. And really, you know, the transport system is so beautifully kind of conducive to, to, to that because we have, um, you know, at the big level, obviously, you have, you know, planes and boats, which are less relevant. But at a city level, um, you have public transport systems, you've got scooters, you've got cars, you've got bikes, uh, taxis, Ubers, or the equivalent car sharing. If all of that was integrated into one app, and if you needed to get from here to there, then you know you use this app you can make use of it there might be a bicycle uh, sort of storage area down on the corner of your street you use that to get to the public transport hub which then takes you to here to there but uh, you know and there's a lot of appeal in that because for one thing the amount of pollution reduction i mean mm. that was one other benefit from covid was people had clear air mm. you know the actual health benefits of that are staggeringly high i mean you know i know it came at a massive cost in terms of people dying from COVID-19, but there were a lot of lives that were saved simply on the fact that we had less air pollution because there was less, uh, fewer cars on the road and less freight. Um, so back to this mass, uh, mobility as a service. I think there's one city, and I can't actually remember which one it is in Europe now, that has implemented an app like this. And uh, it just, it makes it sort of, it, it just integrates everything. So instead of having to kind of book your bike or book your scooter or your moped or whatever through mm -hmm. one company and then work out what train do I need to catch to get from here to there and then what bus from here to there, it's all one seamless system. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the advantage of that obviously is you have far, far fewer cars on the road. You're not driving, you've got time, you can sit. I mean, I don't try to commute because I work from home for the most part, but you know, when I'm on the train, I get stuff done, I work on the train. And um, it's that, you know, just making things so much easier, which also then requires investment in that transport infrastructure. And again, this is another area where it does come back to governments and um, you know, state and, and kind of national governments to actually invest in the public transport infrastructure that would be needed to realise that. Um, and it's funny you sort of talk about the, what the individuals can do and and paraphrase the usual suspect, which is the greatest trick that the fossil industry, fuel industry ever pulled was convincing people that this was up to individuals to make a difference. Yes, it is. Yes, everyone should be making a difference, but the vast bulk of our emissions are beyond the control of individual people. Mm. Um, yes, we can, you know, we can choose to buy food that's made locally instead of uh, shipped from overseas. You know, yes, we can eat less meat. Yes, we can 
put solar panels on our roofs and we can buy an electric car. We can do all of these things. And those collectively make a massive difference. But the, the biggest difference is going to come from the kind of the big scale changes, the things that we as consumers don't have any control over, like, you know, what freight ships are made, you know, are powered by, what, you know, hydrogen refueling infrastructure across um, across a country or um, electric refueling stations or carbon markets and carbon taxes. So, uh, you know, I, I always sort of like to balance those arguments that yes, the individuals, we have a really, really important role to play, but that should not be taking, that should not take away from the much bigger responsibility that um, industry and business and governments have, because the actions that they take are going to be um, have far more uh, significant impacts. They're, they're going to be able to shift the dial a lot more mm. than um, than individuals are. So it's it's a balance, but that means you know yes we do. There are so many things that we as individuals can do. Yes, we can use our cars less. We can walk more. We can cycle more, which can be difficult because our cities are set up for cars. Mm. Um, and this is again this is another thing where um, as individuals we have no control over how our cities are designed um, but you know again local councils uh, state governments it's looking at well instead of you know building these new suburbs so that you basically you have to have a car to get around why aren't we building these suburbs and building these kind of you know expanding these cities in such a way as to allow them to be much more localized so that people don't have to use cars to get to work or to get to the shops or get where they need yeah. to go so there's so many decisions that could be made every step of the way that make it easier then for individuals to have, you know, to use their cars less and to walk more, which obviously has a whole other range of health mm -hmm. benefits. In the book, you talk about the reduction of meat consumption. And there's this push, obviously, for people to, to go sort of meat free, not only for the ethical reasons or for what, whatever environmental reasons they have as well. I feel like that's somewhat of a proxy though, because I don't know who's funding that because I feel like it's, it's important obviously to reduce because you have deforestation specifically in South America with the, the farming of, of, uh, of feed specifically for, for these, for these animals. But I almost feel, think, think that there's sort of oil companies and, and carbon companies that are sitting there thinking, great, it's sort of, it's off our hands now. So we've pushed it to the meat industry. It's their issue now. Uh, yeah. People are reducing that. So. Yeah. And, and look, it, it's, I mean, diet is one of those areas where we do have a lot of control over what we eat. And so um, it is one of those areas that a lot of people are asking, well, how do I change my diet so that I can reduce my carbon footprint? There's been a lot of, um, obviously a lot of coverage of that. And mm. yes, you're right. At an individual level, you know, an individual's contribution to having one meat-free meal a week is pretty small. But when you add that up across the population, yes, it does have an impact. Um, and meat is one of those areas. And I say this as a rampant carnivore who also <laughs> then married a vegetarian. So, you know, I... <laughs> I'm, I'm conflicted, shall we say. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an area where there are a whole range of additional benefits that do come from eating less meat. There's significant health benefits. There are um, environmental benefits that extend way beyond carbon. And you mentioned deforestation in Brazil, which is uh, deforestation is one of the biggest contributors to the carbon emissions associated with, with eating meat. Mm. Um, 
there's ethical um, issues for particularly when you know look at intensive factory farming the, you know the, the animal welfare issues associated with that are massive um, there's also uh, carbon um, not carbon sorry methane emissions associated with there's runoff there's nutrient overload um, mm. there's kind of soil degradation I mean it, you know it's the meat industry is highly problematic highly problematic um, and there are obviously there are a lot of advocates for, you know, low carbon low carbon farming, and there are a lot of um, arguments that certain ways of um, farming capital can actually help sequester carbon in the soil. And yes, that's true. But the sheer volume of meat, the amount of meat that that certainly uh, we in the kind of wealthy West eat, is far far beyond what we need to be eating. Um, so as much as it pains me as a, as a you know, half-blooded Hungarian to say this, yeah, meat, if you're going to do anything with your diet, don't worry about food miles, reduce the amount of meat intake, reduce the amount of red meat intake. Um, and if you do eat meat, you know, look for grass-fed, look for organic. Uh, and I know that sounds terribly hippie, but it, you know, it just adds up. It adds up on a number of different environmental levels. Um, and so, again, this is one of those areas where, you know, we all desperately want to feel that we are making a difference and that mm. we, we do have some agency in this fight. And unfortunately, meat is one of those areas where, yes, it makes a difference. Even just having one meat-free meal a week mm. um, can, it does significantly reduce your individual carbon emissions and your household carbon emissions. So, yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. There's probably the oil and gas industry. They're going, yes, yeah. they can all just focus on trying to find a vegetarian recipe that their kids will eat and we're yeah. off the hook. Exactly. But, um... <laughs> you, might not, you might not want to hear this from me, but I think they should approach it the similar way that they approached, for instance, sugar and they approached tobacco as well. I think as my, I don't, I'm not a big meat eater. And that's not for any ethical or environmental reasons. I'm just like, I just don't eat a lot of it. But yeah. it's one of those things for me, I think there's on the meat side of it, I think a lot of people say that obviously there's the nutritional benefits of doing so. But like anything, the overconsumption is is, is an issue. And I yeah. think from, it seems as if, I know there's, there's a widespread research, the fact that young people are drinking less and smoking less. And that has been attributed not only to the health awareness aspect of it, but also the taxes that have been imposed on those goods. Because mm -hmm. if you increase the price of them, young people don't have the money and the resource to buy them. It's only really the older generation. So, And once they get habitualized to not consuming those products, they're not going to consume them when they get older, once mm -hmm. they have the money to do so, because they haven't habitualized to them. So perhaps that is a, a way to go as well for, for me if they, if they want to do that. But I'm sure you yeah. wouldn't be too happy about that. <laughs> oh, no, I can live. I mean, like I said, I hardly eat any meat because I've married a vegetarian. Woe is me. But anyway, it's um, it's a pretty rare thing. But um, I mean, you know, certainly in Australia, the, the meat and livestock industry is is pretty powerful for our, mm. uh, obvious reasons. We have a, a pretty massive industry. Um, but again, this is where something like, you know, a, a price on carbon will uh, will trickle down into those things. Because if the livestock industry... Um, and, you know, different types of livestock farming obviously have make different contributions and the more intensive than generally speaking, the greater contribution, the more deforestation, the greater contribution to emissions. But mm -hmm. if the livestock industry is subject to the same uh, carbon price that any other industry, then, uh, you know, I think that cost 
it will become embedded in that product and it will make those products more expensive. Mm. Um, just like, you know, the fact that we have a premium on organic farming at the moment, I was thinking it should be kind of the other way around. <laughs> um, but again, there's, there's going to be a, that, that's going to be a, a hard fight, particularly in a nation like Australia that, um, that is kind of associated with chucking a steak on the barbie and, the, and you know, the kind of that cowboy, you know, iconography. So it'll be a hard fought battle, but Transition, it'll be yeah. a battle that'll come. Definitely. I think a great way to end this would be to talk about some of the challenges in a way to produce a society that is carbon zero, because like we've been discussing, it's one of those things where it's overdue, this change. But obviously, that we've discussed many challenges. I think it'll be good to perhaps talk about some of the challenges, but also some of the ways that we can, as individuals, perhaps lobby certain local governments or what we can do to to show or to uh, encourage to make this change because like we've said a lot of it is out of our control but i feel like if we always think that it's out of our control then we're never gonna at least push to, to make a change so what do you feel like are some of the challenges but also some of the opportunities um, so, well, I, I mean, I see the biggest challenge has been governments um, and, you know, obviously I kind of thump on them pretty hard, but I, I particularly in Australia and particularly over the last decade of conservative governance in Australia, it, we've, we've just seen the environmental situation has just got worse and worse and there's been no meaningful action taken. Um, and again, you know, the, the private sector looks to government for those signals um, and so if government's not sending those signals, it makes it a lot harder for the private sector then to, um, to, to make that decision to, to, you know, to move forward with a renewable energy project or to move forward with, you know, green building, green buildings. Or, you know, if there are no incentives in place, then why would they do it here? Um, and if there are no incentives anywhere, why would they do it anywhere? So I, I think that's a, a challenge. I think also a challenge is that, um, that there's a fear that adapting, or not adapting, sorry, that um, meaningful climate change action will mean the end of life as we know it in terms of our way of life. I think, there's, I think that's kind of underpinned a lot of resistance so far, it's and and you see it, you know. I occasionally get into fights on social media, which are so productive, uh, with climate deniers, and they and you know you get these people saying, "Oh, so I guess you just want me riding a horse to work then, do you?" And you just go, "Oh, oh you know, it just no. Like, why do you think that this has to be so? You know, we're not going back to the Stone Age. It, this is not going to mean that suddenly we have to, you know, only live by in daylight. It, it's." you know we're, we're so much smarter than that we're so many we have so many technologies and ways of doing things that even you know even to the extent of for example in australia you know, going you know the, um, the australian indigenous people have long had a practice of cultural burning of of the bush here and that practice has been partly and this is i mean the, the oldest continuous culture on earth they've been here for tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and that, that burning was a way of kind of um, tending to the bush of, um, you know, looking after it, but it also prevented really massive bushfires. And those massive bushfires release huge amounts of carbon. Whereas when you do smaller scale burning, you do cold burns, 
you, you have much smaller fires that kind of maintain the landscape. You don't have as much carbon released. You know, so not all of these solutions uh, are high tech. Some of these, a lot of these solutions are actually quite simple. You know, it's, it's having uh, buildings that can be uh, ventilated with fresh air instead of requiring air conditioning or which are built in a solar passive manner so that they, we don't have to, um, yeah, again, use air conditioning so much. It's, you know, it's green walls that um, can kind of keep water from running off and that that can then be used in a building instead of having to kind of clean water. Um, it, there's, there are just a wealth of solutions that exist. Um, but it's just happening too slowly. And I think part of the problem is so many of these things, you know, if, if we were in this position 40 years ago or 30 years ago, we would have, you know, it, 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 there wouldn't be as much panic. It'd be like, okay, all right, we got this. Let's, let's just move. Whereas, you know, we've squandered 30 years or 40 years of dithering. And so whatever we do, we have to do it really, really fast. And so it, it will be this case where, case where we will have pretty drastic shifts, I think, in certain aspects of life, like transportation. But in a way, kind of COVID has given us a crash course in that. It's like suddenly we can't fly. Okay, then we can't fly. Suddenly, you know, Zoom is the company and everybody's doing meetings on Zoom. And it's like, that wasn't that hard. That really wasn't that hard. So, you know, I think we, we frighten ourselves into thinking that this is going to require us to sacrifice um, so much of the thing, so many of the things that we take for granted. And really, it's not. It, it's, but we, we have to do this quickly. We just have to move um, and make these changes as quickly as possible. So, I, I mean, I'm at the, at the heart of it, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic, I think, um, that these changes will happen. Um, but I think a lot of it depends on elections. I mean, can you imagine? I think I'd, if my mood would be very different if Trump had got re-elected. Mm. And I certainly am dreading, you know, the next Australian federal election because if, you know, the Australian populace once again sends a signal to conservatives that they're happy with business as usual, then we're in trouble. Mm. Um, so... That interesting, yeah. the interesting point you made about the retraction to horseback, I think, like, people who think that reducing your carbon emissions will mean that you go back to living in a cave to me is humorous because if you look at the technology that technology companies are putting out there for for instance the mass system or systems mm -hmm. of of bio uh, fuels uh, mixing waste with jet engine fuel i'm like that's not a retraction to the cave that's quite the opposite that's how Absolutely. we are using innovative solutions to, to better improve our lives. And those technologies will have a trickle down effect onto new industries that will come into the consumer market, so, which is, I don't think a lot of people think about when it comes to these big companies that are making technological innovations, they have subset companies that hit the consumer and they will see a benefit in, for instance, ease of use when it comes to, I mean, look at some, something like Uber, or look at, you know, these companies you know, mass changes in technological innovations hit the consumer, not immediately, but they do. Yeah, I mean, there's huge benefits, there's huge opportunities. And, you know, these, these companies that are doing, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, Walmart, um, Microsoft, Apple, all of these companies, they're not doing this because it looks good. They're not doing this because, you know, they're a charity and they want to save humanity. They're doing it because there's a profit in it. Mm. Or what's more, there's also a, a, going to be a significant, sorry, significant economic cost of not acting. So, you know, this, this idea that, 
this, yeah, as you said, is a regression is, is just laughable because there's a lot of companies looking at this going, there is some serious money to be made here. Yeah. Um, even just in energy efficiency is a, is a, a huge area uh, of opportunity. And, you know, I mean, we all now have LED light bulbs or, or you know, no one's using kind of the old, um, I can't remember what they're called now, the old, old light bulbs, you know. <laughs> It's, a, it's such a small thing, but someone made a lot of money out of that and they're going to continue yeah. to make a lot of money. And, and it's, you know, there, there's some like biogas. I always find this idea of biogas that we have all of our food waste that we currently just chuck and sits in landfill and generates methane, which then, you know, is a greenhouse gas. You know, in Germany, they have, most small towns have biogas digesters. Everybody chucks their food waste in there. It's collected. It goes in there. They generate um, biomethane from it and they use that in replacement of natural gas. Mm. That wasn't so hard. It's just infrastructure. Mm, Germany's have it sorted. Let's all let's all move oh. to Germany. Yes, or well, Denmark. It's always with the Northern Europeans. They just seem to have this stuff together. I don't know how yeah. they do that. I, I don't know. Anyway, thank you so much for this conversation, Bianca. It was great. Uh, we discussed your book, Climate Change: How We Can Get to Carbon Zero. Where's the best place uh, for people to find you on social? You said that sometimes you you go on social and, and have these arguments. So if anyone wants to have an argument, with you, where, where can they find you? Oh, that's a risky business. Uh, yeah, so I'm is. on Twitter. It's just uh, at Bianca Nogrady on Twitter. Okay, um, perfect. My Facebook happily is private because okay, yeah, <laughs> there that's I can fine. really cut loose. Yeah, exactly. But no, no Facebook, just Twitter. Perfect. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Owen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content. Also, visit our website, www.booktalktoday.com to subscribe and download the latest edition of our magazine. Join our mailing list to receive the first issue for free to get a taste for the value-packed content that we are offering. Book Talk Today, for readers, by readers.